The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. It is a real pleasure for me to be here. It's great to be back at the North Campus. Uh, My wife and I, we've been connected to work in the Middle East for 20 years nearly, and Bethlehem has stood with us during that whole time. We were trained here at TBI, which I suppose people coming new have never even never heard of TBI with BCS. So we're really thankful for Bethlehem as a church. We're thankful for the North Campus where we worshipped for a number of years. Pastor Stephen asked me to continue the sermon series from the book of Acts. And of course, we call this book the Acts of the Apostles. And that's right because it mostly focuses on the Apostles especially Peter and Paul. But when you guys began this series some time ago, it was rightly said that it could also be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, for he's the one who's empowering the apostles. And perhaps even better to say it's the Acts of Jesus, because it's through him that he's continuing his, it's in him that he's continuing his work through the apostles in the church But what we sometimes miss is that Jesus did his acts not only through the apostles, but also through lots of lesser-known characters throughout the book and, of course, throughout history. People we've never heard of, people we don't know. Chapter 18 is a really good example of this. Often, as we read through the book of Acts, we focus on Paul or Peter in previous chapters because they're the main people Luke focuses on. But sometimes it's helpful to give attention to these lesser-known characters, and that's what we're going to do today. So basically, I want to preach three sermonettes, all of which, all of which in different ways demonstrate the main point, or the, they illustrate the main message of the book of Acts, namely that Jesus is at work by His Spirit to build His church through His people. We'll see the gospel in three acts. The first act is called hospitality with Priscilla and Aquila. The second act is Crispus and his treasure. And the third act is humility in Apollos. Uh, But before we do that, I'm going to give a quick summary of the chapter. So in chapter 17, Paul had just been in Athens. He had spoken to the Jews and, of course, to the Athenians and the Areopagus. And now in chapter 18, he comes to Corinth, where he meets Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They all have the same trade, which is tent making, and so he stays with them. Each Sabbath, he shares with the Jews about who Jesus is, being the Christ. After a bit, though, the Jews get tired of hearing him. And they, they give him, they, they oppose him, they, they push back against what he's saying, and Paul has enough. He audaciously declares in verse 6, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he does. Of course, such a thing would be scandalous to say among the Jews. And they would have been enraged. But lest we think that Paul tries to flee or hide after saying such words, Luke tells us that he goes to the house of a Gentile, 
Titius Justus, who lives next door to the synagogue. So the Jews know exactly where he is. He doesn't try to hide from them or flee from them. And although Paul is right now at the home of a Gentile, and he's sharing with Gentiles, teaching Gentiles, he does not reject the Jews who want to know more. For we're told that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, after he had focused on the Gentiles, that he and his whole household believe. In verse 8, Paul begins to feel the heat. There's continued opposition and threats, but God comforts him and says, Do not fear. I am with you. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. You will not be harmed. I have many people in this city. And so he does. For a year and a half, he boldly proclaims the good news that Jesus is the Christ. In all that time, the Jews get more and more fed up and finally decide, let's take him to the proconsul, to the Galileo, and get rid of him. And so they come and they make their case against him. And Galileo basically says, you guys are arguing about religion. I don't care. Get out of here. And he goes. Paul then leaves Corinth and stops in Ephesus. Again, he goes to the synagogue to talk about Jesus, which incidentally shows us that when he says, I'm going to the Gentiles, it does not mean he had no concern or no care or no love for Jewish people. He still was gladly declaring the good news of Jesus to Jews. These Jews in Ephesus want to hear more. They even ask Paul to stay, uh, but he cannot So he carries on his journey. He lands in Palestine at Caesarea, from which he then goes up to the church in Jerusalem to greet them, and on to Antioch, encouraging disciples along the way. This chapter 18, it concludes the second missionary journey of Paul, and it sets up the third missionary journey when Paul goes back to Ephesus. And then finally, the last chapter of 18 is not about Paul at all, But it's about Apollos with Priscilla and Aquila coming back into the story. But we'll get more into that in a bit when we get to Apollos' story in Act 3. So, Act 1, hospitality with Priscilla and Aquila. In this focus on the secondary characters and the ways we see the gospel through them, we begin in Act 1 with Aquila— and his wife, Priscilla. Acts 18 is the first mention of them. We find out that they were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Christ. They had been living in Rome, but they were forced to flee because Claudius expelled all the Jews from the city. And so one of the very first things we learn about this couple is they're refugees. They're not in their home. They were forced to flee their home to a new place They were forced to reestablish themselves, and therefore Aquila and his wife Priscilla also know what it means to be persecuted for following Jesus. They know what it means to be persecuted for their faith, and they know what it means to be a sojourner and an exile on earth. Now, Paul stayed with them when he first arrived to Corinth, and we don't know how they knew Paul. It might have been that they had a mutual friend or an acquaintance, or perhaps Paul simply met them in the marketplace as he was selling tents and building tents and repairing tents just as as they were. We don't know. Regardless of the reason Paul went to see them, we learn that they are hospitable, for Paul stayed with them. Now, this is all the more remarkable when we remember what we just said about them. Remember, Corinth is not their hometown. 
They were refugees there. Now, it may well be that they were people of means, but they were not long-standing, they were not a long-standing family in Corinth that had lots of extra room and could easily welcome a new guest. But they were hospitable. And so they invited Paul into their home. They welcomed Paul just as Jesus had welcomed them. And they knew and lived the Christian virtue of hospitality. In fact, hospitality is such an important virtue that Paul not once but twice says that it's a requirement for anyone who wants to be an elder in the church. It must be hospitable. My family and I, we used to live in Damascus where, frankly, we learned from our Syrian neighbors what it means to be hospitable. And even now, we continue to visit and connect with Syrians who are outside of their country as refugees, and they continue to teach us what genuine hospitality really is. So we sit in their dilapidated homes on flat mattresses, drinking tea or coffee, and quite frankly are often forced to have breakfast with them or lunch or dinner or if having lunch to then stay long enough so that we can also have dinner. We learn what it means to be hospitable from these remarkable people. Well, Pr- Priscilla and Aquila, they were hospital, hospitable. They gladly welcomed Paul into their home. At least a year and a half later, when Paul left Corinth, he took them with him when he sailed for Ephesus, and he left them there. And so we see that they left another home to go to a new place, and therefore we understand that it's not stability and comfort that they seek, but instead they're willing to serve the Lord Jesus wherever they are. In Rome, until they're kicked out. In Corinth, until an Paul invites them to come and proclaim the good news elsewhere and live and share with others who Jesus is. And then in Ephesus, they're willing to serve. And then they actually left Ephesus and returned to Rome. So they left home after home after home. And in each place, they were hospitable, welcoming Paul into their home. And then when they were in Ephesus, they actually had the church in their home. The same thing when they were in Rome. We see their hospitality. Look at Paul's greeting. This is Paul's greeting to the Roman church in Romans 16, verse 3. He says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Clearly, they had impacted a lot of people. Greet also the church in their house. So they had a house. They had a house church. The church gathered in their home. They were hospitable and they welcomed people. They did this in Rome. They did this in Ephesus. And both of these churches in Rome and in Ephesus were made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, they, they were brought up. They're, they're Jewish. They would have heard their entire lives how the Gentiles are unclean and unholy and how they need to stay away from them at all costs, lest they be defiled. And yet, because of Jesus who broke down those walls between Jew and Gentile, 
Priscilla and Aquila also broke down such walls. And they welcomed Jew and Gentile together in their home, recognizing that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, but we are one. And so they had no problem welcoming others whom they probably were told were their enemies into their homes. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that though we were enemies of God, God Christ died for us. So Jesus gladly died and then welcomed those who were his enemies. That's what he does for each one of us. We who were enemies of God, we come to Christ by faith and he doesn't push us away. He doesn't say, you have rejected my father and been his enemy. I want nothing to do with you. He welcomes. Priscilla and Aquila had learned this from him. And so they did the same thing. We see the gospel lived out in Priscilla and Aquila's lives. And not only were they hospitable and willing to break through social barriers, but they were willing to risk their own lives in love for others. This is what Paul said in Romans 16. He says, they risked their necks for my life. So they loved Paul as they loved themselves. They loved Paul as Jesus had loved them. They loved him even to the point of death, if necessary. So they were bold and courageous. So we see as a couple that they were a couple who served Jesus wherever they were, even when they were not in their home or the place of their choosing. They were a couple who were willing to not bow to societal norms. They were unwilling to only pursue comfort. They were unwilling to hold on to their own safety at all costs. They testified to Jesus in all these things. He was just like that. He served God where he was. Jesus was not enslaved to societal or religious norms. He was not enslaved by the people around him who tried to dictate who his neighbor was, but he had love for all people. He gave up his comfort to become a servant to all, and in the end, he gave his own life so that he could welcome his enemies. Before we close this act, I want us to see something else that is actually quite surprising and a bit strange that Luke does at at the end of Acts 18 when they come back into the story. He says in verse 18, Luke, he says, Paul set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Did you hear what's strange there? He did not write Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila's the husband, Priscilla's the wife. He didn't say Aquila and Priscilla. He, he switched it around and says Priscilla and Aquila. He does the same thing in verse 26. And it's not only Luke who does this, but Paul does it as well. When he writes uh, Pr- Prisca, which was her more formal name, and Aquila. He does that twice. And only one time does he write Aquila and Prisca. Now mentioning the woman's name first in Paul and Luke's day was strange. And actually, it's, it's still strange in our day, isn't it? Now, if I say Noel and John, you all probably know who I'm talking about. But it sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? It's not common. We typically would put the man's name first, but Luke doesn't and Paul doesn't. So why? We don't know for sure, but it's likely he does this because Priscilla was the more prominent of the two the more well-known of the two. 
And so we just want to point out there's nothing biblically necessary about husbands outshining their wives. It's quite normal, actually, for a wife to become more prominent. Husbands may be more prominent. They may not. It's not a problem that most of us have no idea the name of Johnny Erickson Tata's husband. It's not a problem that we have no idea who Elizabeth Elliot's husbands were. We know Jim Elliott. She was actually married twice. I had to Google that because I didn't actually know for sure. Priscilla was more prominent, likely, and Luke and Paul had no problem with that. It just was. It wasn't a big deal. It's a very small observation, but it has significant implications. So some of these minor characters in the scriptures, and especially in Acts, whom we so often simply read over and don't think much about, they also preach the gospel with their lives. Priscilla and Aquila teach the gospel of hospitality in their lives. They welcomed others as Christ welcomed them. So now Act 1 is at a close. And here's the intermission time before Act 2. I'm going to pray for our intermission. Father, we thank you for the lives of Priscilla and Aquila, for their great example of being hospitable and welcoming and living out their lives. We don't know much about them, but the little bit we know does testify to your grace in Christ, the grace that they lived in and lived out. And we thank you for them. And I pray, O oh God, that you would, in your power and mercy, make us be hospitable so that we would welcome others as Jesus has welcomed us. Father, fill us with your spirit so that we would welcome others, even those who are different than us. Help us to welcome them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, act two. Crispus and his treasure. Act 2 is short. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. We don't know much about him. Verse 8 says this. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.14 that Crispus was one of the few people in Corinth that he actually baptized we know clearly that he was Jewish, he was the ruler of the synagogue, and therefore he was prominent among the Jewish community in Corinth. He would have been the one who led and directed worship and the reading of the Torah for the Jewish community. So he was well known among the Jews, some of whom, many of whom, opposed Paul. And so he surely had heard of, or maybe was present, when Paul made his declaration that their blood would be on their own heads and he was going to the Gentiles. And what I find so remarkable here is that in our text, it says that he and his household all believed after Paul went to the home of Titius Justice. So he had rejected the Jewish people, we could say, and began to focus on Gentiles. And it was after that that Crispus and his household had believed. Now imagine the anger and the resentment among the Jewish community when Paul would say such a thing. Imagine if someone came to Bethlehem and said to you, your blood on your own heads, I'm tired of you Americans. I'm going elsewhere. Now you probably wouldn't want to talk to that guy unless you wanted to yell at him. 
And yet, Crispus, there was something he heard, that something that drew him or pulled him, and he wanted to know more. And so he knew where he was, and he pursued him. He went, and we don't know exactly what happened or how, but we read that Crispus and his whole household became believers. Now, Crispus, of course, he was the ruler of the synagogue, so he knew his Bible. He knew the law of Moses. He knew the the writings, the Psalms and the Proverbs. He knew the writings of the prophets. And so when he heard Paul, he surely was scrutinizing it with what was written in the scriptures. He surely was checking it. And in the end, he was convinced that Jesus really is the Christ. And not only him, but his whole household. And how unusual is that, that his whole household believed We are so individualistic, especially here in America, that we don't tend to think that a whole house could come to faith together. It's one, a father, and then maybe a long time later, a wife, maybe a son, maybe none. And yet here it was his whole household who believed. In Acts, this was actually normal. In Acts 10, Cornelius and his whole household believed and received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 16, Lydia and her household, and then the Philippian jailer and his household, they all believed and were baptized. In fact, in the book of Acts, 90% of the conversion stories are group conversions. Only three times do we read about individuals coming to faith in Jesus. Paul, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Sergius Paulus in Acts 13. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, especially how it relates to the way we do evangelism. It's something that we think about often in our own context, especially as we try to raise expectations of what God can do. Because God's done it. Meaning he's brought whole families to faith. And he does does this. He still does this. He can do it today. But for now, we simply note that Crispus and his whole household believed And along with Crispus and his household, Luke tells us that a number of other Corinthians believed. Now, in the midst of all of this, God told Paul not to fear, but to keep speaking and not be silent because there was still opposition and there was reason to fear. But God said, no one's going to harm you for I have many people in this city. And in the course of the year and a half that Paul stayed, At some point, Crispus stopped being the ruler of the synagogue because in verse 17, Luke tells us Sosthenes is the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we don't know why he stopped being the ruler of the synagogue. I think the most likely explanation is that people pushed him out. They didn't want a ruler of the synagogue who was declaring that Jesus is the Christ. And so he lost his livelihood, his prominence in the community. Because he saw that there was something better, namely Jesus, who had become his treasure. And Jesus was, Jesus was so good that he was willing to give up his livelihood, his prominence, his reputation, his standing. And so the gospel is able to change whole households. And in this short act, we see the way in which Jesus, who is the center of the gospel, is our treasure. And when we see that, we're willing to give up. We're willing to lose. So, intermission. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you, thank you so much that you have given us in the gospel Jesus Christ, your Son. And he is the greatest gift. And I pray, O oh Lord, would you in your mercy right now open our eyes to his glory and wonder and power so that we would embrace Jesus and all that he is even if it means we lose everything else. We know Jesus is better. Your loving kindness, O oh God, is better than life. So please, help us be like Crispus, to believe whatever the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Act 3. Humility in Apollos. Act 3 begins in verse 24 when we are introduced to another new character. His name is Apollos. He was a Jew from Alexandria in Egypt and had recently come to Ephesus. Luke writes in verse 25, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Somewhere, Apollos had heard about Jesus, and he had learned the way of the Lord. And he had been so well instructed that he was able to teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he has lots of accurate knowledge. He has a fervent spirit that moved him to speak boldly in the synagogue. But something was missing. He only knew the baptism of John. That means he didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was fervent in his spirit and he could teach, but he didn't know the power of God in his spirit, by his spirit, that comes to those who have received the Holy Spirit. But what he knew, he spoke. Verse 26 says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So let's just pause there and ask, how many of us don't speak boldly because we don't know everything? How many of us refrain from saying something to a neighbor or a coworker because we're afraid they might ask us a question we don't know the answer to. This didn't stop Apollos. He knew what he knew, and he shared it. He spoke it. And that's all you have to do. You, spoke, you speak what you, knew, you know. Apollos preached what he knew. And that, the boldness with which he preached, it comes from encountering Jesus. You don't have to know everything about Jesus to really know Jesus and be changed by him. It's the boldness that was experienced by the Samaritan woman who, even though she was an outcast, went back to her village and said, come and see this guy who told me everything about my life. Could it be that he's Christ? Now, what did she know about Jesus? Hardly anything. But she'd met him, and she shared what she knew. Or it's the boldness experienced by the demoniac who had the legion inside of him, and he was delivered from the legion of demons, and then Jesus told him to go and proclaim all that God had done for him, and he left, and he proclaimed all that Jesus had done for him. What did he know about Jesus? Not much, but he proclaimed what he knew. 
In Acts 18, we now have the couple, Priscilla and Aquila, come back into the story, into the third act. Remember that they had gone with Paul to Ephesus, and they heard Apollos preaching. And they noticed that something wasn't quite right. Here's verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they didn't simply point out in the midst of everyone, hey, Apollos, there's something not right, or you don't know that, or you need this. They took him aside. We see their wisdom and their care because their desire was not to shame Apollos, not simply to show their superior knowledge to the rest of the church. Their desire was to build him up and equip him and empower him by learning things more accurately. They didn't rebuke him or shame him. I love this text because it shows the humility required on the part of Apollos. He was, according to verse 24, an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He knew his Bible. He was competent. He knew the Bible and he could speak eloquently. He was gifted. He was a great orator. He was full of passion and he must have been an effective teacher. But he never saw himself above correction. He willingly listened as Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and corrected him. They taught him. And honestly, this just shows how well he was instructed in the way of the Lord. He had seen the example of Jesus and his humility. He had seen humility in the life of Jesus, especially his willingness to lay down his life for others and As a result, Apollos was likewise humble. He saw that since only Jesus was perfect and only Jesus could save, there could therefore be no reason for him to boast or to reject correction. He humbly listened and he learned. And the church in Ephesus saw it because it says afterwards that he wanted to go to Achaia. And the church, they encouraged him and they blessed him and they even wrote him a letter of recommendation and said, yes, go. They sent him. So they clearly saw that this gifted man was humble and teachable. After arriving in Corinth, he gets right back to work. Verse 27 says, When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scripture that the Christ was Jesus. Now, We didn't say much about Paul in this sermon. We could have. Instead, we focused on these lesser-known characters, the gospel in three acts. We saw the hospitality of Priscilla and Aquila. We saw Crispus's treasure and the humility in Apollos. In each one of them, we see someone who's captivated by the love of God in Christ, who then is transformed to go and declare and display that love to others. We see the love of God demonstrated in the way they lived. My hope is that as we consider more what God has done for us in Jesus, that we too would live out the gospel in our lives. That we would be hospitable and welcome those 
even who are different from us. Welcome them into our homes, just as Jesus welcomes us. My hope is that as we see more clearly who Jesus is, that he really would be our treasure. One for whom we would sell everything in order to obtain. And my hope is that we'll be humble, willing to be corrected, and shepherded and led. My desire is that we would be changed by the Jesus that we see in the gospel, the Jesus who lives today. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful because Jesus died according to the scriptures for our sins. I'm thankful that you raised him from the dead after three days. I'm thankful that though we were your enemies, dead in our trespasses and sins, you have shown your great love for us in sending Christ to die for us. I'm thankful, Lord. I'm thankful that you welcome us and love us. I'm thankful for the gift of your spirit. Would you now, O oh God, by your spirit, fill each one of us with your love that we would welcome others, help us to treasure Christ above all, and help us to walk in humility. Regardless of how gifted we are, regardless of whatever position we may hold, make us humble and teachable because Jesus is the only perfect one and he's the one we praise. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.